Well, hello there. Uh, it is Wednesday, the 20th of December, 2017. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Boy, I am delighted to be here today. Um, okay, let me see here. A bunch of things going on. I'm going to close this out because I need to. A bunch of stuff going on. Uh, before the show even got started, it turns out that Floyd is apparently Floyd Mayweather. Yes, that Floyd is apparently talking to the UFC uh, about fighting there. I don't know whether to believe that or not, but we're going to talk about it and what's been said. We'll do some year-end awards. We'll do a lot of things here today on the podcast. Uh, best place to get your questions in is going to be where this window is embedded on MMAfighting.com. <clears throat> Questions that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. Now, there's not a whole lot going on in the sports. There's not a whole lot of questions today. So I might get through all of them today. I guess we'll have to see. But uh, that's still going to be the best place. And, of course, the last 15 minutes, I'll go to Twitter. You can tweet me at LThomasNews, and we can go from there. Um, okay, a couple of housekeeping notes. Number one, you can see I have a new backdrop. Now, I tried to iron out some of the lines here. You see that? I couldn't quite do it. Right, you can see some of the lines, sort of. I'm trying to point here and look at the same time. It's a little hard here. I'll do it like this. You can see the lines like that, right? I tried to iron them out, couldn't quite get them all the way out, but I've got a new backdrop. In fact, I've got several new backdrops. I'm trying out some new ones. Harvey the Dent is gone, ladies and gentlemen. He was a loyal steward of your viewing experience. I thank him very much for his services, but he is finito, gone. So we have some new backdrops here as well. Got a new chair, got a new backdrop, huh? Right. I mean, this is, these are cosmetic changes at best, but nevertheless, changes just the same. So um, this actually gives me the ability to back up a little bit, and I think I can raise my chair. You know what? I don't even know how to, this new chair is like, it's like trying to fly the Starship Enterprise. I don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, in any case, so we got this new one, uh, and in addition, I have been receiving word from you folks who bought T-shirts, hoodies, whatever, from the last Teespring run uh, really good things about the t-shirts. I've heard nothing but praise that I've, I've heard that you guys love the quality because you know I didn't know you, you can you can choose several tiers of quality. You can get really low quality, you can get really high quality. For the first one, I chose high quality, and that comes at a higher price point. But they apparently everyone is very very happy with those um, shirt quality and and the, and the printing and everything. So um, in the new year, look out for new designs, uh, some Barbus designs. Barbus is downstairs. Uh, doing his thing. So we're going to have a bunch of stuff coming out on Teespring in the new year as well. But I'm really happy to hear the feedback that you guys like it. And if you've got a picture of your gear, some of you have been sending it to me, please keep doing that. I, I would love to get some feedback. Or if you hate it, let me know too. Um, all I can do is make adjustments based on your feedback. So here we go. We got a new backdrop. Some of y'all got t-shirts. We're doing good. Okay. Let's get to it, shall we? All right. You know what? Let's go into this Floyd stuff first. All right, you know what? I'll do this. Let me answer the first question first, then we'll get to the Floyd stuff. All right. The UFC's radio silence. Hi, Luke. How are you? Happy holidays. Over the last while, we've, we've seen more and more fighters get into trouble outside of the UFC, from small things like Covington's Star Wars spoilers. I mean, 
that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Two fighters using homosexual slurs, too many examples to list. Two Connors antics at the Bellator event, and even Verdum facing court charges in Australia for attacking Covington with that boomerang, also very funny. At what point does the UFC have to step in and actually make a public statement about something one of their fighters has done outside of the company, or are they not obligated to do anything at all? The only recent example I can think of is Stripping Jones prior to UFC 187 for his antics that time. Not quite antics. Love to know your thoughts. Merry Christmas to you and your family all the way from Ireland. Merry Christmas to everyone in Ireland as well. Wonderful people, a wonderful country. Um, okay, well, first of all, these things are not altogether similar. Uh, Covington Star Wars spoilers was incredibly annoying. I saw Star Wars on Monday. It's excellent. The only people who don't like it are Star Wars nerds who can't believe that Chewbacca doesn't have more of a speaking role and enjoy auto-erotic um, auto asphyxiation with Darth Vader masks on. So do not trust their opinion at all about The Last Jedi. It is, an, it is a, I mean, I wouldn't call it Akira Kurosawa-level cinema, but it is uh, probably the second or third best Star Wars movie ever made. No one can really touch The Empire Strikes Back, but... Um, in any case, Covington Star Wars spoilers were incredibly inconsiderate and just a just a mean thing to do. But that's not, I mean, that's not some kind of crime. I mean, what what Conor McGregor did, to be honest, he wasn't charged for it. But if that had been anybody else, that would have they would have gone away in handcuffs. I mean, that's 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 a fact. Um, what he did was illegal. Uh, Verdum literally did something illegal, of course, faced, as you mentioned, court charges in Australia. What else have you listened to? The gay slur thing, right? Also not illegal, um, although that doesn't necessarily make it good or bad. But here's the point. The, the, what's the common denominator here, right? The common denominator is that no one else outside of the MMA bubble noticed. The MMA bubble is a weird, it's a permeable membrane. Like things go in and out of it, but not everything can get through it and not everything gets out of it. In other words... Um, if I thought that the wider media was fully aware of all the things that MMA fighters were up to, uh, I think the avalanche of bad press that would happen would have a borderline crippling effect. So perhaps it is actually good news that a majority of these things, whatever, which ones you want to pick from this list, don't make it out of the bubble. Um, on the other hand, that creates a limiting factor because it's not merely bad news that doesn't make it outside that sometimes permeable membrane. Um, good news doesn't make it out there uh, outside of it too. That's why a lot of times you see these really great fights that go unnoticed or bad fights that are for whatever reason popular go noticed. It's, it's a shield and it's a throttling of UFC's, uh, better parts at the same time. Um, so that's why. There's nothing being done about it because they would react if they had to, but they don't, so they won't. Yeah, I don't know that it's much more complicated than that, to be honest. I mean, this whole thing about this code of conduct, that seems to be a relic that you could dust off Indiana Jones style somewhere in the, in a foreign land. Remember this old text of the UFC code of conduct? You know, oh, look at this. That says anything defamatory will be held against them. Boy, that's a... Remember when they said that would be a thing? Ha ha. I mean, that's really what the level of, of relevance that code of conduct has at this point. Uh, I don't know when the UFC, I don't know when the next UFC event is I'm going to, but I intend on asking anybody who's uh, representing UFC brass, you know, what is the state of the code of conduct? Because it does not appear to be at all relevant to anything, anywhere, anymore. 
So the only code of conduct that I am that I can reasonably ascertain exists is the one where are we going to get in trouble with this with the wider press? No. Okay, we're good. You know, which isn't to say there's not some counseling behind the scenes or that the UFC is totally unconcerned and that fighters can do whatever as long as no one else notices. I don't know that, I mean, that seems a little bit exaggerated, but more or less, unless they are forced to react, they won't. So that appears to be the common standard here. Um, you know, you'll recall that the Fallon Fox thing that Mitrion went off on, that actually did make some wider news, which helped put together the, you know, a series of events that, whether well, the UFC began to take fighter conduct a little more seriously. So, but uh, yeah, let's see if something breaks through and then let's see what happens. It would be very surprising to me for news to break out where ESPN is like, UFC fighter did X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. Uh, and then for the UFC to do nothing in that case. In that case, I bet they would issue a statement. In that case, I bet they would find somebody or whatever, but not anymore. And again, how much of that is related to independent contractor versus employee? That's a big part of it. How much is it to the UFC being stripped down in terms of its personnel where they don't really have the infrastructure anymore internally and the, and the resources to you know, handle the overwhelming glut of these sort of bizarre actions, Colby Covington spoilers notwithstanding? That's a big part of it too. Someone says they have in the past reached out, uh, e.g. when Verdum called Okukui um medicon uh they released a statement and encouraged verdum to do lgbt outreach with the recent spat spate of incidents including fabricio's boomerang and connor's irish gangs it looked like surely they would have to say something at some point that seems to have died down now just a case of total incidents coinciding in a short period the connor one is interesting because that would challenge the very theory that i was presenting before connor's thing made all kinds of news but i don't know that anybody recognized that there's any kind of um criminality involved in it it seemed to me more almost a sort of piece of entertainment for the majority of those people i don't think they realize that you jumping in the cage like that is illegal uh putting your hands on a referee and a commission all, all these things could lead to you getting taken away in cuffs if you were just average joe guy doing that i think they sort of looked at it like a celebrity version of you know some donk in the audience jumping on the field and then streaking it you know, so they, look, they looked at it as something like that. No more, no less. So so that sort of challenges that too. The the Verdum one, I don't know. I was on vacation at that time, so I don't exactly have a good grasp on what happened there. Maybe they're sensitive to those needs, so they were a little bit more proactive about it. But I think generally speaking, they just don't want to have to deal with anything they don't have to deal with. And the Connor thing was bad, but um, I don't think the, the larger media recognized that that was, you know, not just perhaps inadvisable behavior, but illegal to do. And so therefore they were just like, hey, that's just fighters being fighters, you know, whatever. It's just a celebrity being a celebrity. Did you guys remember years ago when Floyd did that video, like from, from Puerto Rico, where he was at a cockfight? Do you remember that? I think that's the time where he like, like insulted Pacquiao racially. And he's like, he did like a video. I think it may have been like a Ustream or a recorded video, like from a cockfight. Um, that made some news because that was just like so egregious. But it's the same. I mean, look at for look at look at this. Let's get into this Floyd thing. Look at this Floyd thing. This guy went to jail. Now he served his time. All right. So there's something to be said for like paying debt to society, whatever that means. But 
this guy has, you know, when it comes to like domestic violence past, look at all the things Connor said about him. Look at all the things MMA fans said about him. Dude's a bad guy, right? Like he's a smart guy. He's an unbelievably successful guy, but he's he's a bad guy. UFC apparently has no problems getting into bed with him. None. It's whatever they can sort of morally get away with. Any kind of common standard that existed before appears to have been. I, I don't. I, I couldn't like if someone asked you what is their moral compass at this point. It's not to say that they don't have one, but I can't figure out the contours other than. They appear to have some sensitivity related to previous incidents that other fighters have had with respect to the gay community. There's that. Things that blow up beyond their control. That. What What is the other common denominator? What is the other line that they, they draw that fighters can't go past? You can insult Dana White, apparently, without any incident anymore. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And now they wanted to get into bed with Floyd, which they already did for, obviously, the McGregor fight. But. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember when Dana White was on Fuel TV making videos about Floyd being racist, about Jeremy Lin. You know, you guys remember that when he was like, you know, Jeremy Lin is, you know, when he was that when he was that sensation where he was just having to be was bawling out of his mind. And, you know, and then I think I think uh, Floyd was saying that was only because he was some sort of like Asian curiosity. Right, that there wasn't not in those words exactly, but that um, the only reason the media cared was because he was Asian, which there was something to be said for the fact that this was a novel um, experience for all of us. But that's not exactly true either. And in any case, I remember when Dana White was like Floyd is racist on Fuel TV, you know, and now they want, <laughs> and now they want to do a deal. It's yeah, uh, you know, it's just it's funny. It's funny. I, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what to make of any kind of you know, moral arbitration such that it exists. Now, as it relates to Floyd, let's find that because that is something else. Um, all right, let's see here. UFC Mayweather discussed possible, what is this called? Discuss possible UFC deal, Dana White says. All right. Love the autoplay videos on ESPN.com, by the way. UFC and Floyd Mayweather Jr. are discussing a deal that would bring the undefeated boxer into mixed martial arts, according to UFC President Dana White. Quote, we're talking to Floyd about doing a UFC deal. It's real. He was talking about boxing Conor McGregor. Was that real? Have you heard Floyd talk about many things that aren't real? Yes. Uh, he usually tips his hand when he's in the media, and then that S ends up happening. We're interested in doing something with Floyd. Everything is a realistic possibility. Mayweather versus McGregor effing happened. Anything is possible. Uh, then Dana White goes on to say, there was no way I thought that fight was going to happen. Talking about Mayweather McGregor. But when you sit down with a smart guy like Mayweather advisor Al Heyman, a very intelligent guy, anything is possible. And Floyd, as much as he does the money thing and this and that, Floyd was actually very easy to work with. I was impressed. Uh, okay. What do you make of this? Here's, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about this. Number one, this feels like it's got WME written all over it. Now, it is true that the UFC brought in James Tony at a time when they were marketing it as, as like literally explicitly as UFC versus boxing in the promotional videos for that contest. Speaking of which, that was in Boston, where of course they're heading uh, in January. In any case, um, number one, I, I I suspect that this won't happen. I don't know if you guys saw this. Jimmy Shapiro sent out some odds. He's a famous bookmaker. 
he has some odds on this. So the odds for Floyd fighting in the UFC in 2018, he's got it at yes, plus 500, 5 to 1. Or no, minus 900 at 1 to 9. I'll take that no at minus 900, thanks. Look, I didn't think that Mayweather-McGregor was going to happen, but that seemed... If you had to ask me what is more likely, Mayweather-McGregor or Mayweather fighting in the UFC, you would have to pick Mayweather-McGregor for all the reasons that you know about Floyd. That he doesn't take enormous risks. That he likes to have everything on his terms. That um, he likes to be in control. And in the boxing realm, where he's fighting a guy who had no pro experience and could make an extraordinary amount of money, that that seemed at least, in theory, more plausible than what they're suggesting here, which is going over to mixed martial arts. But to me, it seems like um, this has just, as I mentioned before, this has WME or Endeavor, whatever it's called now, written all over it, where they realize they don't have a ton of star potential I mean, they've got, they've got a ton of star potential. They don't have a ton of star power anywhere on the roster currently that's actively competing outside of McGregor, but he, he's not actively competing. He hasn't defended his title in over a year. Um, and they need to find whatever is the biggest possible splash they can make. This is the one that appears to be what they're trying to do. Now, I think the old UFC would have done this deal if they could have as well, but they wouldn't have – I think they whatever working conditions in terms of control that would have been established before would not have been broken. Now I think they can probably break that. And this is to me the real litmus test about this. Um, who, who are they going to put him up against? You know, they put James Tony up against Randy Couture. You know, not just a guy who was an experienced, decorated MMA fighter, but a guy who was a uniquely poor matchup for him and fought him in a uniquely uh, devastating way. John Smith low single, took him down, passed, choked him out, right? That was it. No, no more to it than that. Um, if they, again, I don't think that this deal will happen, but if it does... What you need to be looking for is who they put him up against. If they put him up with some donk, you know how like they went like when Herschel Walker would compete in Strike Force, they'd just give him like a nobody, like Greg Nudge. Remember that Greg Nudge, and he just ran over the guy. If they do that, then surely it can be declared without any contest that the UFC as we know it is no more. Now I know some folks are saying well, that's already the case. Mm, it might be. I certainly wouldn't argue against it too hard, but I feel like there are still some remnants left of the old way of doing things that uh, are going to die hard and have not died yet. If nothing else, if not rules, then certain sensibilities from the fan base and certain sensibilities from the fighters themselves, a certain craving for the way things should be or used to be or could be again. This would, to me, extinguish all of that. Not, not, not the use of Floyd per se, but... If they gave Floyd, let's say he fought a what? Well, let's say he fought a 145, right? Or even 135. If they gave him Marlon Marais, I'd be like, okay, all right, good. This will be interesting. Um, but if they went and just signed some guy off the street, you know, who was 0-1 or something, you know, I, I'm not here to proclaim that would be the end of the world exactly, more so that it would be the end of any notion about what the UFC has ever been about. Um, that's just not the way that they have historically done business. And you can say, well, those day, those those are outmoded uh, or outdated modes of doing business. Yeah, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not, though. Um, I, I, I would consider that a total 
a complete 180 from everything that they've been. They would, they would become effectively strike force in that case. Right. And the thing is, you're like, well, what was so bad about what Strike Force was doing? The, the argument is not that you don't want a promoter out there signing Herschel Walkers to go beat up on scrubs. It's not really what that's not true. You do want that. It, it, it provides a service to the market. What you don't want is your brand leader doing that. You want an alternative to the brand leader doing that. You want a differentiation from that because that kind of booking ultimately, I think, tells people that unless you're doing these kinds of you know, outlandish fights that what really is the reason to tune in? You're not really promoting a sport. You're that, in that case would be total spectacle. Uh, and again, MMA has always been partly just spectacle. And I think some reconciliation about that is due, but this would be in the modern context, this would be a total reversal of the sensibility about what this organization has stood for, what it, what it, what it is supposed to be. Uh, and what kind of leadership it's supposed to provide in the MMA space. Remember on the MMA beat last week, I was, I was sort of saying, like, if, if the UFC is not going to take care of their middleweight division, who is? You know, they are the ones who have proclaimed themselves to be the steward of the sport. Um, this would be this would be not that. Not that in any capacity whatsoever. And by the way, here we go. I got my Diet Mountain Dew today. Got to stay caffeinated, folks. Mmm, delicioso. All right. RDA transitioned to welterweight, a catalyst for others. Luke, you mentioned on your post-fight show on Saturday um, that RDA is looking really good at welterweight. And he could provide an example for other lightweights to think about leaving the shark tank and tough weight cuts to move up to welterweight. What improvements specifically have you seen? Does RDA have a speed advantage, a cardio advantage compared to when he fought was uh, lightweight? Also, is there anything you have noted which RDA has maybe got away with since his move up? Does RDA's success also give hope that Aldo could do something similar he, he moved up to lightweight? Potentially, I mean, the Aldo situation is a little bit different because he's getting finished now when he didn't used to. And uh, you'll recall... RDA got finished in his UFC debut. A little bit different. So he's not getting finished now. At least not, you know, he, he's getting in tough fights, but he's he had early troubles that he worked through versus having an early lead that you're struggling to hold on to. Um, that's sort of the difference between Aldo and RDA. But I mean, here is my point about RDA basically. Look, I don't think there's a lot of I, when a guy goes from 170 to 185. Kelvin Gastelum or Johnny Hendricks. First of all, Johnny Hendricks did have some success up there, although he just got demolished by um, Bohashinia more recently. But he had some success up there. Um, but you could just tell that wasn't a good weight class for him, right? It, it just You can just look at that and say that's clearly not where you belong. You might be able to win up here now and again, but you're not doing yourself a whole lot of favors up here. Kelvin Gastelum is in a bit of a better position where you can say he's got some nice wins, but... You know, when it comes to the elite and the younger guys in that division, just the size differential against Chris Weidman was just too much to overcome. He just couldn't do it. But, you know, he did drop Chris Weidman in the end of that first round. So that's pretty interesting too, right? But you can just also look at Kelvin, Kelvin Gaslin and be like, I don't know, man. It's hard to argue that this is the very best place for you to compete. Um, that's not – I'm not seeing any of that dynamic with RDA. Now, that's just one guy. But I realize it's 15 pounds and 155 to 170. 
and it's another 15 pounds from 170 to 185. But it feels like the guys who are like RDA and maybe Kevin Lee and maybe even Tony Ferguson, if you want to move up, it feels like those guys would have less of a gap, even though it's 15 pounds in terms of the size differential versus the 170 years going up to 185. It feels like, yeah, it's 15 pounds each way, but it feels like those guys like RDA were cutting so much weight that it's a much it, they're not giving up all that much when they go back to or not when they go back when they move up in this case to 170 there's just less distance for them to cover because they were making these dramatic drops down to do that and i don't i don't know exactly why that is i don't know if it's a body type issue or the way in which uh, you know, the particular nature of just a couple of guys i don't know exactly how to explain that but my point being was yeah he moved up to 170 but he looks like he physically fits right in you know neil magny had a bigger frame but my god RDA just put it on him like it was nothing. And then, he, of course, he beat Tarek Safadine, and now he look what he did against Robbie Lawler. And I know there's some mitigating circumstances about Lawler's knee, but, I mean, he was winning that fight cleanly up until then. Uh, and and the, the, I think the more important part is, you know, Lawler had a few moments where he hurt RDA or he landed a good shot anyway. But R, RDA was – he was never really in, like, prolonged firefights. He was never – uh getting hurt too badly he was always he was always keeping the fight in a rel relatively safe position and for me that's the reason why everyone's like well maybe Lawler would have come back in the fourth and fifth of course who could say he, he couldn't have i don't know that he couldn't have but i'm a little bit skeptical about it because rda was fighting in a way that was a shutdown style not an open-ended um tit for tat style and so in that in that context, it just makes any notion of a comeback a little bit harder to swallow. Although, again, I cannot suggest that. Here's my point. He just has a style that really pairs up well with moving up in weight, which is to say RDA is a very physical guy. He's a physical guy. He's got – I bet he's got a super strong grip, and he likes to strike hard, and he likes to attack vulnerabilities, and he leg kicks hard, and he drives in on a shot hard. There are certain guys where everything they do is really, really physical. You know, they have just physical dominating, not a grinding style exactly, but just this – just this. you can feel this intense intensity of purpose and intensity of strength at the same time. And he just feels like one of those guys. So, you know, he's throwing body kicks. They land hard. He throws leg kicks. They land hard. Um, he shoots in a double, man. He gets the shoulder all up in on the waist, man. He gets, you know, ball and socket joint, right? He gets up in there. And I think that really helps him translate well up a weight class. It really does. He can go up there and move and, you know, without a, without a terrible amount of issues. It's pretty impressive, to be honest, um, for him to be able to do something like that. So, I, again, I don't know that everyone is going to be able to do that, but it just makes me feel like, these guys aren't – they don't look like they're losing much when they go up a weight class. And Kevin Lee, you know, his is a bit more right now of a wrestling style. We'll see if that changes as time goes on, if he can really begin to open up with his strikes. But Tony Ferguson, you know, he walks around out, outside of 200 pounds. I think he could very easily compete at welterweight. So those guys at 155 who are teetering on the edge of it and having difficult weight cuts, you might find at 170 that they're way more competitive than we thought. And and strangely, there's some guys at 170 that if they wanted to move up 15 pounds to welterweight or to excuse me to middleweight, it would be it would be very very challenging for them. I'm not one of these guys who buys the argument. It's like oh, it's so clear that less weight cutting is so much better for you. I think in some cases, in many cases, less weight cutting is better. And certainly, you don't you know look, there's going to be diminishing returns on a weight cut, no matter what. Um, uh, but 
it's not true that like less weight cutting is always better. I think it's just a sort of a fundamental thing that we we haven't accepted. We're trying to change this wisdom where it's like, oh my God, weight cutting is so bad for you. Boy, it sh- certainly can be. I mean, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that's true. Oh my goodness, you know, like these guys who don't cut any weight, they perform better than the guys who do. Mm. You know, I, I would like to see that measured out a little more scientifically. I, what, at, what, at what point in terms of body percentage um, is that true? Like if they lose, you know, 5% of their weight, how, how true is that? If they lose 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 or 15 or 20, whatever, you know, whatever the number is, I want to see that. I want to see that in data because I, I have a hard time believing that like all uh, that no weight cutting is better than some weight cutting. Mm, I'm not sure that's true. And I think as a consequence, it's going to be that calibration at the end. Well, if some weight cutting is better than no weight cutting for certain fighters, how much is some weight cutting that's enough before it gets to be too much? And that's going to be where they get that that wrong, but I I am firmly a believer that like some weight cutting is either at at worst negligible in terms of outcomes, and in some cases probably beneficial. Now it's going to be a very a very modest amount of weight cutting. Understand what I'm saying? It's going to be very modest, but I just want to sort of combat this notion. It's like all weight cutting is bad. A lot of weight cutting is bad. A lot of weight cutting is just dangerous and stupid. But some modest weight cutting, how do we know that's bad? Where's the data that suggests that? Because I don't think that's true. Uh, missing weight and its impact on a fighter and a fight card. All right. Look, two weight cutting controversies on Friday's weigh-ins were Emmett and Manga. All right. Emmett was missed weight and accepted the financial penalties that accompanied it. <clears throat> excuse me. That accompanied it. Went ahead with the fight once Lamas agreed and KOs Lamas and is now it's his misdemeanor is forgotten. Mostly forgotten. He has to go and weigh in again, you know, for his next fight. And if you mix that, I think then it'll be completely forgotten. But yes, Manga accepted he would be nowhere near weight, and his opponent, however, declined the fight at the higher weight. And now it appears that both Manga and Timiliat have slights on their character from this. How can this be better managed going forward? Great question. These two were late replacements, both Manga and Elliot and uh, and Emmett. Excuse me. Uh, and probably need a full camp in order to maintain that their diet over a long enough period to come in on, on fight weight. True. Should the UFC have checks in place, especially for late replacements, during fight week to protect the health of fighters and therefore the strength of their fight card to avoid dropouts? Well, to some extent, they already do. Um, it feels like a check the night before could at least give a position on fighters' chance of making weight. And if there are doubts, then this should be communicated to the other fighters so that they don't have to cut as drastically either and maybe agree on a middle ground. Instead, it seems like fighters just bite down and try to make it come up short on the day and then hope the fight goes ahead. Or is the solution for the UFC to pay fighters that make weight their show money and say 20% of the missed weight fighters purse so that the pressure isn't on the likes of Lamas to take fights where an opportunity may have advantage, but you want the money. All right. So a couple of things here. Um, when they show up on fight week, they get checked, and they might get checked like every subsequent day. Uh, they certainly get everyone gets checked when they show up, so they have some idea exactly when they arrive in on fight week of where they are and where they need to be, and they probably do have some um, uh, information about. Uh, well, let, me, let me just leave it there. So when they show up, they certainly get that checked, and there are subsequent checks throughout the course of the week. Now, even with that. Um, Fighters may tell them that they can make it. Um, the fighter like Ricardo Lamas may not want to have a catch weight. You know, in this case, I know he accepted it at a catch weight, but uh, Tim Elliott didn't want to do that. 
So even if you know that this guy's not going to want to make weight, um, how does that change it? Right? Oh, oh, two days out, this guy's not going to make weight. All right. Well, I'm not. If he's not, you know, let me let me let's see him prove that first. I mean, ultimately, there's this sort of notion where it's like this guy's not going to make weight, and then when it comes time to make the weight, you're going to say, well, let's actually see how far he can get. Right? I mean, you're telling me he can't make it. All right. I'd like to see how far. Push him there, and then we'll go from there. Um, but sort of checking gives you a sense of, you know, to what extent this may or may not happen. But in the end, it's I think the, the better question is here is what about the remedy when they don't? Now, for me, um, I, I think a way to handle is if they show up and they say, well, this guy's, you can clearly tell this guy's X percentage off. He's not even close to what these guys are normally are for this kind of a cut. I think then you go back over there and you say, look, we're, why don't we bump this up five pounds? And we'll bump your pay in addition to that. Not merely just a percentage of what he's got. We'll actually raise your level of pay on us uh, for you to take this fight. Maybe that would help. But there's to me, this is not the right question because they do check on this. I just feel like in the end, fighters want to see what the other person can do. So to me, let's go let's go through these uh, fight by fight. So on the Emmett case, um, I really have no issue with what happened. He missed it by two and a half pounds because remember, it could have gone to 146. He made 148 and a half. And Ricardo Lamas accepted it. He got 30% of the purse from Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett was not eligible for a post-fight bonus, even though he had probably the best finish on the whole fight card. Um, he does have now this, not stain, but this sort of like asterisk about the weigh-ins, even though maybe that's not fair in the given the totality of his record. But as I mentioned, he has another fight to go through before I think folks will say, okay, that may have been just sort of an aberrant, uh, moment because he only had three weeks to train for that contest. He just can't get down at that kind of amount of time. Um, I really have no issue with the way that went down. Both guys agreed to the terms. There were penalties in place, um, pretty severe ones at that. I have really no issue. If the two guys agreed to it, you know, did, did Josh Emmett win because he had, you know, two and a half pounds more than Ricardo Lamas? He actually told me, I interviewed Josh, he came in on fight night lighter for that contest than he did his previous one where he made weight he was actually three or four pounds less he came in at like 165 on fight night um and that was less than what he came in and get the fight previous that i think there was the uh, felipe aranches fight so in the end that was not really much of a factor and he couldn't sweat anymore the doctors were monitoring the cut and they were like i think he had lost like I mean, some, I forget exactly what the number was, some astronomically small number after like an hour of working out, the doctor like, this is basically as far as you're going to go. If you try to go any further, we might have to call it off. So that was it. That was the natural body limit of the cut. Ricardo Lamas accepted it, got a little bit of help from his paycheck as a consequence, and that's that. The mango one to me is radically different, radically different. So he was way off. Uh, he was off by five. He was off by five at a weight class where one, Tamilia is not a natural flyweight. He's a natural bantam weight. So it's a hard cut for him to get down there too. And he did it. Number one. Number two, um, the five pounds at flyweight, that's a lot more than five pounds at light heavy. That is a substantial uh, difference. It can be anyway, depending on the, the quality of the opposition. Um, but it's at least much more of a factor than the two and a half, two weight classes up. That's another one. Third, um, here's what I don't understand about some of these calls for someone like Tim Elliott to fight. I don't understand this at all. Look, if he wanted to accept it, like Lamas didn't mind accepting the Emmett fight, who are you or I to get in the way? Okay, let's go. This is fine. Okay, great. Let's have a fight. But if he doesn't want to, for a guy who is five pounds off, 
why should he be ridiculed for not taking it? Here's my point. We bring in, we have weight classes for a reason. We have athletic commissions for a reason. And ostensibly, we have anti-doping officials like USADA for a reason. And those reasons are to maintain some degree of health and safety, as well as some degree of uh, competitiveness about these contests. How is it possible, I am, and you are, we are asked to believe that we need, and I'm going to use them as just an example here, but there's many, many factors that involve health and safety as well as fair competition. But on one aspect of this, how am I asked to believe that USADA is an important contributor to the sport, and yet this guy, Tim Elliott, is supposed to take a fight on short notice against a guy who is halfway to another weight class? What is the point of having anti-doping officials who guys, some guys, everyone thinks like when you're juicing, you're juicing to the gills. A lot of guys microdose. Uh, a lot of guys just sort of do small things to give them just a little bit of an edge to get ahead. Just a little bit of an edge to get ahead. What is the point of bringing in someone like that than asking Tim Elliott to take a fight against a guy who is halfway to another weight class and might balloon well past him by the time that they get up there when he did all the work to get down? Then we have these questions of reasonableness and fairness of competition. Well, I don't get it, guys. Which one is it? Are we supposed to have these done by the letter of the law to ensure uh, fairness and safety? Or are we allowed to just skirt these for expediency's sake when a fight is in jeopardy? Because if we're talking about fairness and competitiveness, a guy being halfway to another weight class where that halfway can have a significant effect, just to let that go so the fight can go forward? I don't, I don't, I don't really get that one at all. Either having some kind of standards of fairness for competition's sake matter, or they don't. Uh, and Tim Elliott, well within his right, well within his right to say no. The problem, ultimately, to me, is these guys make desperate choices because if they turn down fights, they feel like there's going to be retribution down the line. They, there's no such thing as show and win money. You get your money. Um, for the contracted completion of a bout, and if you win, you get your win bonus. This notion of like if you show, you get money. There's 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 no such thing as show money. It doesn't. It's a it's a weird con. It's a weird construction that we've just invented that literally does not exist. We have looked through UFC contracts. There is no such thing as show money. There is money for completion of a bout. There is a win bonus. Or some guys were very lucky. You saw this more commonly in Strike Force. You see it in Bellator as well. A flat fee. Right for the completion of about you don't get money for weighing in you don't get money for weighing in and a portion of theirs if they don't make weight the UFC might be generous in that sense and give it to you but it doesn't exist to me the major problem is these guys don't have any contractual protections when they do everything asked of them and the other person does it and I understand that man guy was trying to do things on short notice I understand that I completely understand that but if the UFC is going to book a guy on short notice uh, and he can't even get close to the finish line, and it's so far away that now there are reasonable questions of how fair and competitive this is and what kind of advantage this guy is taking in, uh, Tim Elliott deserves to be compensated. I think any of the abuse that Tim Elliott has suffered is totally unfair. It is absurd. This guy has fought the toughest of the tough in not one but two weight classes. Trying to question his bona fides is insulting. It's insulting, and it's ridiculous. Um, but these guys don't ever, I don't know, I don't know why they don't have these provisions in their contract other than I'm sure the UFC just tells them to go pound sand. Um, it's a leverage world and they have the leverage in that sense. But that to me is the remedy. Have some kind of peace of mind that if you know 
that you show up and you did everything you could. You made the weight. You sacrificed during camp. You said no to all that food that you really wanted to and you didn't have. And you said yes to all the training that you were supposed to. And you did everything by the book and you were disciplined. And you get on that scale. That needs to be contractually honored. And it's not. And I think that is a major issue because that would enable fighters to say, I did my job. That fool didn't. He didn't even come close. Uh, I'm not going to bother with this. And you might say, well, that would reduce the number of overall bouts that guys would take in those kinds of circumstances. So then you have to sweeten the pot. Then you have to say, all right, if you take this fight, we'll do this for you. We'll give you X amount of dollars or you know, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the, will help them work. But that, to me, is the problem. Uh, RDA versus Woodley. What chance do you give RDA a potential matchup versus Woodley? P.S. You never unblocked me on Twitter. I didn't? All right, let's, let's unblock you on Twitter right now so you stop crying about that all right unblocked there you go with your charlie hebdo <laughs> avatar all right what chances do you give already in a potential match versus woodley um i don't know i have found his success at welterweight surprising i guess for all the reasons i listed aforementioned Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have seen it coming. I didn't. I mean, I, saw, I thought he would win a couple fights, but I didn't know he would like just start bulldozing guys like he has. Now he didn't bulldoze Lawler, but he did Magny, and he beat Safadine pretty cleanly. Uh, yeah, I did not see this coming. I don't know. Um, could he get the takedown? Probably not. Woodley has a very physical style that can match RDA's intensity. To me, it'd be a question of what they could do on the outside. We know that Woodley likes to back up against the fence. What kind of attacks would RDA have up there in those contexts? RDA is a guy who, you know, again, he's a physical style, but I don't want to say he's some sort of like undisciplined brute. You know, he's got really forward direction in terms of his purpose and tactics and strategy. He, he puts together good game plans. He sticks to them. He's got a lot of answers for a lot of different scenarios. You know, I would probably favor Woodley because I just think that case, the size differential might negate some of the physicality of RDA. You know, you saw what Nurmagomedov was able to do to him, but at the same time, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, it would just be how exactly you deal with a retreating and up against the fence like this kind of Woodley. I don't know. I don't know what kind of answers RDA would have for him in that context. All right, here we go. 2018, a quick yes or no. All right, UFC Liverpool happens in 2018. I'll say yes. UFC Hawaii happens. I'll say no. Um, Connor defends lightweight belt. Yes. Connor is stripped of lightweight belt. No. GSP contests for welterweight strap. No. Connor and GSP fight. Yes. Ronda returns. Nope. Nate Diaz returns. Yes. Ben Askren comes to the UFC. No. Michael Bisping fights and retires. Yes. Criteria for sub of the year. Great question. Typically, I've seen the more exotic subs get sub of the year, but shouldn't the setup to a sub be considered just as important? For example, my sub of the year is DJ's suplex armbar of Borg, the mighty whiz bar. The armbar was fairly routine, but the setup to the armbar to me was just as important, and it was absolutely spectacular. 
Uh, one says uh, Davi Ramos. How do you pronounce it? Davi Ramos. Submission choke of Chris Gertz, Grutzmacher reminded me of DJ's suplex armbar of Borg, mostly because of the way it was set up. Both submissions started from the takedown. It felt like a takedown was part of the submission, like the first step movement. That wasn't a takedown. It was a mat return. Um, and from the mat return, he sunk the one side choke, snatched him off his base, and then used that to sink the other uh, hook and then the choke. I guess the approach of sub of the year is the same for five of the year. It feels to me it lacks knowledge of the majority of MMA experts. Oh, God, here we go. The five of the year is a clear example. Often a brawl is awarded. I would agree that that's a problem. It would like be Arsenal versus Liverpool game that ends 5-5. Entertaining for sure, but with dreadful tactical display and an array of bad defense. Yeah. Uh, someone says all pundits would highlight and value those negative aspects of the game, uh, unlike they do in MMA. Well, it just depends. So... I agree. My major issue with the giving, like people are like, oh my god, you got to give Medeiros versus Oliveira fight of the year. Well, understand, you know, you have to take your hat off to those gentlemen. What an incredible fight that was, and insanely fun. Uh, and there were some tactical elements to it that I think some folks missed, particularly with Yancy Medeiros as it relates to any kind of ground operation. As I've gone over before, both the hand plant to maintain his base to stay on top, and then the one where he sunk his hips, turned, grabbed the arm of Oliveira and use that to spin on top. That was pretty incredible. But those are two small things, right? Um, here's what I would say about that. Uh, so if someone asked you what's cooler, the Brett Johns uh, calf slicer or, and this is a different year, but let's say um, Anthony Pettis' arm bar of the guard from Benson Henderson. Well, you can have a difference of opinion about which one is cooler or more fun or more interesting or whatever. Certainly the calf slicer is a rare submission and in that sense it can be very difficult to pull off but you know what's harder to do uh, there's a presence of mind required for what brett johns did i don't want to suggest not but i've talked about this before submitting a black belt with an arm bar from the guard is borderline impossible it can be done especially if they're hurt and we'll recall that it was a body kick i think from pettis to henderson that caused it um but uh, that, that you know caused him to think to shoot and then take him down and he whipped around and it, it is a very very, very you you are not going to see you go and watch the nogi worlds were last weekend there were arm bars you saw how many arm bars from the guard did you see almost none almost none you saw rear naked chokes you saw um what else did you see you saw some arm bars from the back you saw arm bars from mount you know that's a little bit different but you didn't you saw some you know you saw a variety of things you almost never see that because it's so hard to do. It's not as flashy. You know, it's not as fun to look at. But if you're talking difficulty, um, it's 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 maybe the hardest, one of the hardest by far. It's super – anybody who's really good, and even then, like purple-brown level, you're going to have a hard time submitting them with an arm bar from the guard. It's going to be hard, right? Um, so when I look at, and, and then let's be clear about this. Anytime everyone's like, well, fight of the year should be this and fight of the year should be that. There's no book on what a thing should be. You're allowed to make up your own criteria, but your criteria should be at least coherent and it should reflect the realities of what it means to have a, an effective submission game or an effective submission in this case and, and a variety of other things included. So for me, it's like, you know, what did the, how hard was the finish to come by? Uh, how rare was the type of submission used? What are the larger circumstances in terms of uh, what was on the line? Um, how talented are the jiu-jitsu players or the submission players, whatever they are, uh, in, the, in, in both cases, both the person who submitted and the person doing the submitting? You know, what are those cases? Because if you're looking for like, if you're looking for like, um, you know, something exotic, 
you know, the Nogi Ezekiel from Alexio Winnick would be your number one choice, but he did it on Victor Pesta. If you get submitted with a Nogi Ezekiel from Mount, look, that is an amazing submission. Don't misunderstand me. I couldn't do it. I don't think I've ever done anything like that in my life. But if you're getting submitted by that, you know, you're, you know, there's something to be said about your ground game. Uh, 10 years ago, I one time rolled with Ryan Hall. I think he was like a purple or brown. I don't remember what he was at the time. It was like 10 years ago. I can't remember what his level of ability was back then. And he twistered me in like 30 seconds. And he, you know, like, is a twister cool? A twister is super cool. But what does it mean for him to submit me back 10 years ago? Nothing. He could probably do the same thing. Now, I'm just pointing out, like, at that time, it didn't mean anything. Um, uh, but it looks awesome. So, to me, it's like, uh, to me, the, the Demetrius Johnson one is interesting because it's it's a novelty setup. You don't see a lot of other people doing it. Ray Borg, I'm not saying is the most amazing submission player in the world, but he is scrappy and he clearly gets out of a lot of positions. He fought through that arm bar for a while, or at least as much as he could. So it was a novel entry. It was to break the all-time UFC title defense record. It was against a guy who was, you know, not elite, but certainly good on the ground. And um and it was in a title fight. That is that is impressive. That is impressive. That to me meets all the criteria. That's not to say that Brett John's submission of Joe Soto is nothing. It's also impressive. We're, we're, we're talking about all things that are impressive. We're just trying to rank them. Um, but for me, doing it against on someone on the prelims, you know, show me that in a show me that in a title fight. Show me that at the top of the card. Show me that against somebody who's really awesome. You know, Ovin St. Pru used to be the king of the calf slicer. Uh, well, not the king, but he had some calf slicers before he got to UFC. You haven't seen any of those since. Now you have seen, of course, some of those. Um, um, Von Flu chokes, but have you seen those against anybody who's like super good? Let me look at his Von Flu chokes just before I get myself into trouble with that. You could say Yushin Okami, but Yushin Okami is a middleweight, you know. All right, here's his Von Flu chokes. Uh, Marcos Hogerio de Lima, you know, it's not not anything elite. Yushin Okami, not anything elite, not anymore anyway. And then Nikita Krilov back in 2014, who was a good fighter, but not super elite not even in the ufc anymore so although he should be but you get my point that's not the same thing as demetrius johnson doing that in a title fight off a mat return for a setup that no one's ever seen before that's different that's really really and you're breaking the all-time title i mean just to have just to have the balls to try and some size something like that is insane you know it's totally insane so There's a five-mile question about UFC and being anti-Diaz. Dana White clearly knows Nate is a draw. Nate was never put on the main event spots on pay-per-view until his fight with Connor. First one had 10-day promotion. Both fights were outside of both fighters' weight class. Blah, 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 blah. So what, he's essentially asking, like, what is this reason for the distance between the UFC and, and the Diaz's? Is it because, well, partly the Diaz's are, you know, they don't fit well into a corporate structure. I think that's part of it. They're not as easily promotable in that sense. But, you know, if you know how to promote them, obviously they can be very, you know, widely promoted. So there's that. Um, the other one is like everyone wants to claim that Diaz was as popular now as he was before the Conor McGregor fight, Nate. And that's just not true. He was, of course, a fan favorite in many ways, but he didn't really break through until the Conor fight. Uh, it, it elevated him in a way that nothing else had at that point. Um, and so now things are totally different, and he recognizes that, and that's why he's been a little bit hesitant to work 
around it. But, it, it, you know, he, he was certainly – don't get me wrong. It wasn't he was – the argument is not that he was – that he's always been this popular. The argument is now that you've seen how popular he can be, you have to ask yourself, is it only Conor McGregor who could do that for him or did, did the UFC underpromote him long before that? And there's probably a little truth to both of that. There's no denying that the Conor McGregor halo on him after that contest had a profound effect. And you can also argue that the UFC has not done a really great job of promoting either Diaz brother. You could also argue, if you wanted, that the Diaz brothers themselves have made it a little bit hard to promote themselves historically. Not, you know, whatever you want to say about the recent months and years is a little bit different. But over time, you know, I can't tell you how it happened to me last year. I get promised an interview and they don't show. Um, how many you, you can name every MMA journalist out there who has had to sit down with those guys at one point, plan, and then they don't post. Um, it's been a lot of that. And to some of that uh, aids this image of being an iconoclast. Some of that actually hurts their ability to get across. So there's a, there's a lot of complicating factors there that all go into it. But I think, yes, if you want to argue the UFC just never understood them and never put them in the appropriate light, that's true. However, it is also true that the Conor McGregor fight was a bit of a game changer for Nate Diaz in terms of his level of popularity. The amount of searches done for him pre and prior I should say, um, but you know, you know, before that contest and after that contest was like, you know, night and day, just radically, radically different um, in terms of how they were viewed. So there's, there's the, the, everyone has a role to play there, including the Diaz brothers, but Dana White and the UFC too. Someone says they hate doing media, though I agree that the UFC needs to do better, utilize them. That's true. I'm sure it makes it difficult when they want to pay paid a proper amount. And you cannot trust on, uh, you cannot count on them to show up to do all of the media, or in Nick's case, pass a drug test, despite how meaningless it is to pot for pot. I'm sure all of the budding heads and issues hurt their desire to push these guys as well. The UFC likes to show its power over certain individuals, when even when it's not in their best business interest. Also, Nick shows no desire to return. He may not even be eligible after his whereabouts infraction. Nate has been offered fights that I'm sure they would promote if they paid his asking price. It's just a lot of... And look, at some point, if you know you can't work with somebody under unless it's under certain terms, you're going to stop working with them, right? So there's a bit of a, I'm not going to say burned bridges, but rickety bridges, that's for sure. Rickety bridges. Uh, first live event. Hey, Luke, UFC 218 was my first live event, and it was an incredible experience. The Little Caesars Arena was fantastic. My only gripe is that the crowd seemed to be very drunk and obnoxious. <laughs> I had decent seats, was in section 117, and there were probably five to six crowd fights that broke off around me. There was also an older gentleman that got escorted out for trying to smoke a blunt. <laughs> my man. People in my row, specifically in the middle, constantly needed to get more 1050 Bud Lights. God, they are expensive, aren't they? Can you imagine, can you imagine paying $10.50 for Bud Light? You couldn't pay me $10.50 to drink Bud Light. Uh, resulting me and my friends having to stand up so they can walk by mid-fight. I also couldn't get over how many people yell out comments that clearly show their lack of MMA knowledge. My question is, is this a normality for the live experience, or is Detroit just full of donks? Regardless, it didn't ruin my experience by any means. It just stuck with me. I asked the same question a couple of weeks ago, but was too low on the thread. Thanks. Here's the good news for you. You ask, is this a normality for the live experience? Uh, that is exactly normal. That is that is a, that is how they all are, basically, give or take. You might get lucky here or there. You might get in a section that doesn't have too many donks. But uh, yes, you're asking, is Detroit full of donks? Well, of course it is. Uh, is this a normality for the live experience? Yep. Uh, 
Sure is. This is the the attending audience. This is what they love to do. The, I mean, you go to these audiences, and I joke about it. You hear these woos that sound like hound dogs that have been left outside in the cold by their owner, and they're begging to get back inside. You know, in the case of the hound dogs, I would let them in. In the case of the, uh, I mean, these feral animals wooing in the audience in uh, in the in the venue, they should be escorted out and given the wood shampoo. I mean, total vermin to a man. I mean, can you? I mean, this is how deadbeats, in my judgment, sing to each other in public. Woo, woo! It's like a it's like a you know a white trash mating call or something, uh, and that's merely the tip of the iceberg about what you commonly see of these things. But, you know, look, as much as I'm giving MMA fans a hard time, I'd much, much, much rather go to an MMA event than an NFL game. And an NFL game, yeah, you have tailgating and stuff like that, but I don't trust the I – don't, I, I don't trust – I don't trust my ability to go to one of those to see anything of note unless you have really expensive seats – and to not witness 85,000 fistfights uh, in the parking lot between old people and rival gangs and whatever else. I'll go to a UFC event or an MMA event over uh, an NFL event any day of the week, any day of the week. So you got to just learn to live with it a little bit. You, you're going to see people that know nothing about MMA. That's the common thing. You're going to see people spending exorbitant amounts on terrible beer. You're going to hear deadbeat mating calls. Uh, you might get lice, you know, all kinds of things, but I would actually say it's safer and a lot more fun than going to an NFL game. Um, NBA game is probably, you know, better NHL, at least in DC, it's totally a family atmosphere. Um, I don't know what it's like for the Philly flyers, but you know, here in DC, it's not that kind of thing, but, uh, yeah, that is your experience sounds exactly right. Someone says, are there uh, usually a lot of just bleed donks who make their voices heard, but fights in the crowd and mid-round mid beer runs haven't been a problem at the events I've been at? Sounds like more of a Detroit thing to me. I mean, I'm not saying those are like, you know, if you're having a bunch of fights, that's common. But, you know, it's not uncommon either. And uh, the guy getting up to get a bunch of beers, uh, that may have just been a little bit unique to your thing. But, but yeah, I mean, people like to get hammered. And I'm not mad at him for it. I'm not mad at them for it. They like to, they like to. It's hammer time when you go to a UFC event. I get that, man. You know what? You've been working all week, and your boss has been up in your up in your grill, and you paid good money for some seats, and maybe all they have is Bud Light, but you're trying to have a good time and just unwind and watch two dudes swing on each other. Hey, man, that's a good time. I get it. Go have your Bud Light. That's really what you want to do. Uh, it's just I, you know, Bud Light is a step up from the milk that Luke Skywalker drinks in The Last Jedi. It's not much of a spoiler, don't worry. All right. John Lineker. What do I think of John Lineker? I think he's good. What type of fighter do you think he is? I think he's a striker brawler. I thought he looked a bit flat in his last fight versus Vera. This could be attributed to a 10-month layoff. Yes, and I think Vera has dramatically improved and is good at distance management and takes a shot well. I see his fight with Rivera going. I actually have Rivera on my show tomorrow. I think tomorrow, yeah. Um, 
Rivera is going to have to stick and move, but that's exactly what he can do. It's just going to be a question of to what extent Lineker can force exchanges. When he can force exchanges or he can force someone to cover, that's when he really begins to open up. Favorite John Lineker moment? Jesus. I don't know. The Michael McDonald KO was pretty good. Fantasy matchups, Couture, Fedor. So we're assuming that this is their primes, right? Uh, I'd probably go Fedor. Overeem versus Boz Rutten. Overeem. Prime BJ versus Tony Ferguson. Probably Tony. Prime Mayweather versus Lomachenko. God, I'd love to see it. Um, I'll say Lomachenko. Connor versus Nate at 155. Probably Connor. Jones versus Prime Kane. Jones. Prime GSP versus Prime Anderson. GSP. Woodley versus Rory. I know they already fought, but Woodley is better now. Probably Rory again. Lesnar versus Crow Cop. Probably Lesnar. And then Sergio Ramos versus Gerard Piquet. Uh, someone says, Ramos versus Piquet would be a no contest. They would, have, they would both throw themselves into the canvas and fake an injury. Yes, that's probably true. Sergio Ramos, most red cards <laughs> in La Liga history. I love him. Mi Capitan. How do you not love that guy, huh? Will Habib be able to make up for lost momentum with a showcase win over Barboza? Sure. Barboza, I, I, no one's really talking about this. I, do y'all not feel like Barboza is like the worst possible matchup for Habib? Which isn't to say I think that he can't or won't win, but that if I'm sort of evaluating who would be like a really terrible matchup for him, Barboza seems to be that guy because Tony Ferguson will kind of oblige you on the ground a little bit. I mean, he has a good takedown defense if he wants it, but a part of me feels like he wouldn't mind taking you down if he or going to the ground with you if you wanted to. Plus, we saw Kevin Lee get, get him down. So, so there's that, but Barboza has no pretensions about having any fight on the ground whatsoever. He just wants to get in and get out uh, on the feet. The fight also starts on the feet. That's Habib's got his hands full, boy. He's got his hands full. So if Habib wins, where do you see him going next? I I don't see how the winner of that fight can't claim a title shot. I really don't. Now, whoever that is, whether that's Ferguson or McGregor or whether that's, I don't know. But the next time they step in the octagon, there needs to be a belt on the line. That I know for sure. Will Ferg hold out for Connor? Well, what other option does he have? Will Connor even come back? Yes, but who knows when? It seems that was what the once the Premier Division is now a very confusing mess thanks to McNuggets. Do people think the McNuggets zing is a good zing? Because I don't. There's, I mean, everyone is susceptible to a good zing. Do y'all think the McNugget zing is a good one? I don't think it's that good of a zing. Are there any top five? Oops. Are there any top five fighters you would favor? Uh, Fergus, excuse me, Max Holloway to beat at one fifty-five. Let's look at the rankings. So currently at one fifty-five, you have Connor, Tony, Habib. Eddie, and Edson, and Justin Gaethje. Yeah, I think he could beat a couple of those guys. Yep. If not several. Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Nurmagomedov versus Barboza. First off, the big one, will Habib make weight, do you think? I think he will make weight. I mean, after the utter embarrassment that was uh, UFC 209, I think he will. How excited are you personally for this fight? I have to say very excited because here's what's interesting to me. Uh, if, 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 if a Connor and Tony fight happened, later in the fight, Tony would be a bad matchup for Connor. But early in the fight, Connor is a nightmare matchup for Tony because of his accuracy with his striking and obviously the power he can deliver in MMA striking, right? I mean, he, the, his pinpoint accuracy, it would be a real problem for him. Now, again, if he survives and it goes to a third round, well, that's when the tide would begin to turn. But those first two rounds, woof, very bad matchup. So let's just say for, for all intents and purposes that Connor's a bad matchup for Tony. I actually feel like uh, Nurmagomedov is a much worse matchup for McGregor. Because I think he could get the takedown on him basically whenever he wanted. But I also think that Tony might, over the long haul, be a, a not a bad matchup for Nurmagomedov, but could beat him. In other words, there's everyone can is a slightly bad matchup for the other guy, but in non-linear ways. Not, not, how can I say this? There's a certain pecking order, and it's not to say that the pecking order that one is automatically better than two in all circumstances, and two is automatically better than three in all circumstances. Three could beat one, but lose to two. Two could beat one, but lose to three. That's sort of what I'm getting at here. Um, and so the, there's a lot of really interesting things. Barboza is a very interesting test case because overall, he's not as good as, let's say, Tony Ferguson, who finished him. But he represents a kind of stylistic challenge that is really the most, it's like, what are all the potential weaknesses that Nurmagomedov has? Let's put that in one guy, uh, who and let's see what he what he can do with it. You know what I mean? Like uh, that really is what Barboza is about. To me, if he can beat Barboza, and I think he can, but if he can beat Barboza, then and let's see how he does it. But then to me, you know, depending on how the matchups work, if he got a fight with Connor, you know, I don't know that he would, but that would be he'd be your next champion, I think. However, you know, if he sort of squeaks by Barboza and then has to go up against Ferguson, um, and both of those guys are able to show that if you can shut the takedown down, there's really no plan B, that would be kind of interesting too. So to me, this is a really, really, really interesting contest. How do you see the fight playing out? Well, it starts on the feet. I think, I, I, I mean, this to me is pretty simple. How does McGregor, excuse me, how does Nurmagomedov beat Barboza standing? I mean, does anyone see that happening? I don't see that happening. Like the takedown isn't just a, you know uh, a priority; it is absolutely mission critical, mission critical. And if you see him, uh, if you see Barboza throwing, so Barboza throws kicks in a lot of interesting ways. But one of the ways that I'm looking to see here is if you see him, you're probably going to see him throw a lot less kicks. So a he can stay on his toes and move around and show good movement, right? Get his hips down. But he is still going to throw leg kicks, or he's still going to throw kicks of some kind. If you see him throwing, um, if you see him throwing kicks that are landing damage, and he's getting no response from McGregor, no immediate response, like a grabbing the leg or you know shooting in after or something, that would be a horrible, horrible sign for or for um, certain. Excuse me, for Nurmagomedov's chances. I guess what I'm looking to see is the frequency of leg of of leg attacks from. Barboza and what response is immediately given to them. That's what I'm looking for. There we go. Uh, true, false. Connor will get his title stripped the next three months. False. DJ's next fight will be against TJ. True, I'll say. Bisping should retire now before taking more damage. False. 
Habib makes weight for his next fight. True. Mike Perry is still in the UFC five years from now. True. Asensal gets a UFC title shot someday. Probably false. There's a question here from Bill Balsack. Uh, another one. Last week you said Bellator ratings were very poor. Yeah, they were less than 300. Less than 400, excuse me. 1,000. How does it affect advertisement, sponsorship, fighter pay, and free agency in the near future? Well, if these deals are in place, um, then in the short run, not much. It would just sort of be when the deals come back up for renewal. But also, they are they are required to show a certain amount of inventory. My understanding is a certain amount of inventory per episode related to whatever the, the fighter metrics are. So if you're seeing um, low ratings, you might see more ads because they have to saturate that as much as possible during the broadcast to get as much of their bang for the buck on the advertisement. So there could be that. But really, the question is long-term. And does anybody, like Bellator, like... They didn't have any like major year-end show, nothing. They spent the last quarter of the entire year just moonlighting in Israel and 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 uh, Europe. I don't understand anything that they've done. I was there for the announcement of like the Dynamite show, and you know some of that was goofy and some of it worked and some of it didn't, but it was ambitious. And I'm not saying moving into Europe is not ambitious. It is in its own right. But where was the like grand finale? Where was the Let's put on a show. Where was the there was the showmanship from Bellator? I don't. I mean, that was characteristic Scott Coker that we understood. That I'm not saying it's gone, but it wasn't here at the end of this year. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. What, I mean, doing tape delay from Europe is ratings death, and I don't understand why they're committed to that. Um, I understand why they want to go to Europe, but I don't understand why there are not some other kind of efforts being made to. Uh, put on events of scale and grandiosity and strength, like Beltor NYC. I, I realize you can't do those all the time, but you're just going to end the year with Michael. Mc, I mean, Michael McDonald's fight. Did anybody see it? You can go see it right now. Beltor.spike.com. Did anybody see it? You know, this is a guy who was a good acquisition for them, and they put him on a show that will do one third the number of cops on. You know, right after, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't. There's obviously some portion of the strategy here that's not clear to me, um, but I don't get it. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Um, you can tweet me at L Thomas News, or you can use the hashtag Chat Rappers. Either one of those is just fine. All right, thoughts on Man City's current form, boy. Uh, and a scale from 1 to 10, how worried would you be if Madrid were playing them in the Champions League? Well, right now, Madrid, Madrid is, this is a down year for Madrid. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's a down year. You know, they let go of Morata. He is, I mean, he has a bit of a slow form recently, but he's been killing it basically this year at Chelsea. Chelsea looks good for the most part, too. And then Hamas is killing it over in Bayern. And I don't know what they're doing with Kovacic. Bale, has, you know, Bale has missed 34% of potential starts since joining Real Madrid, so I don't know what he's going to do. It looks like Isco is probably going to start over him, which is fine, I guess, depending on how they're going to do it, but whatever formation they take. But um, uh, I don't know. So, no, I would not – Madrid is a, is a weak team. I'll just be honest. You know, they're not they're – not, I would be very surprised to see them make a run through the knockout stages of uh, 
of the Champions League. They're just not what they once were. And, you know, before, people forget this, last season there was a lot of games, a lot of games where they would be, you know, losing 1-0 or be tied 2-2 or something. And then they'd bring off the bench Hamas, they'd bring on Morata, they'd bring on Vasquez, they'd bring on Kovacic, whoever. And then it would, you know, their B team was someone else's A team. And so that B team would come on, and there'd be these late heroics, or, you know, it would change the dynamics. So then Marcelo would come alive, or, you know, Sergio Ramos had a bunch of late headers, right? It was, it was like that. And now, because the bench is so depleted relative to what it was last season anyway, um, now, now, now they're bringing on Borja Mayoral. Come on, man. These donks from La Fabrica are just not good. Um, so, yeah, Man City. But I just want last point about Man City. I mean, Pep Guardiola is amazing, right? But everyone, there's a little bit of mythology around around Premier League. Oh, my God, it's the best league. Well, it's definitely the most competitive league, uh, top to bottom for sure. But there's this notion like, well, that won't work in England. Really? Really? There's just a little bit of mythology about uh, some of the things that happens in the Premier League. Well, that can happen over there. It doesn't happen over here. And then Pep Guardiola comes over and it happens over there. I mean, the, the people who like the Premier League like it so much, they think it's like radically better than the other leagues when, in fact, it is better, but it's not nearly the margin that they think it is. All right. Uh Do you actually find out correct form from certain gym exercises? Literally every video has people commenting that the technique shown would cause long-term damage. Yeah, because people in the comment section don't know what the F they're talking about, by and large. Yes, there are some videos out there with some really bad information. If you're looking for good information, let me give you a great tip. One of the best guys to follow on YouTube is a guy by the name of Jeff Cavalier. Jeff Cavalier runs a channel called Athlean X, A-T-H-L-E-A-N dash the letter. X. Um, he is excellent. He's a former trainer for the New York Mets. Um, and he has this entire service that he gets you to pay. His YouTube channel is merely a, a setup for that. He has millions and millions of views. He does a really good job of explaining mechanics, of explaining what you need, um, and showing really uh, the, just the importance of correct form. There are some people who have really bad uh, judgment about that. I would recommend the Arnold Schwarzenegger Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding if that's of interest to you. I would recommend Mark Bell's uh, channel. I'd recommend Omar Isif. I'd recommend uh, Johnny Candido. I'd recommend um, uh, Alan Thrall. I'd recommend, I would not recommend Kaylor Willem's channel as something to repeat because he has this thing where he, he like thrusts his hips into a deadlift and he can, and he can hook grip 900 pounds. I mean, most people can't hook grip three or 400 pounds. Um, uh, I can't, I can't hook grip 400 at all. I don't have that kind of grip strength. So, um, so, you know, it's not something you can replicate, but all those guys will show you, Silent Mike has a good channel, all those guys will show you really good stuff about how to do things in a, in a manner that is safe and well-explained and technical and helpful. And when I grew up, all we had was, you know, Flex Magazine or Muscle and Fitness, and you really, never really got a sense about what mechanically was supposed to be happening. Now I think you have so much information out there that the same kinds of mistakes should be avoided. Um, any thoughts on the Nogi Worlds last weekend? Boy, did you guys see Hanato Kanuto? Uh, he at Kasai Grappling, he beat Gary Tonin, AJ Agazarm, uh, Vinicius, what's his face? And then he beat uh, Manshur Kara uh, all in one night. Then he goes and wins the Nogi Worlds and he beat AJ Agazarm again to win it. Keep your eye on that kid. I think he's at a team zenith. Uh, Hanato, he's 21 years old. Hanato Kanuto, whoa. Whoa, he was impressive. So keep an eye out for him. 
I was sad to see Marola Santana lose to Kenyon Cornelius again at middle heavy. Um, what else did I notice? Um, that's about it for now. Let's see. We're false. Usman will be a 170 champion by 2019. I'll say true. Uh, Mark Diakisi beats Dan Hooker. Ooh, he should. I don't know if he will, though, because Dan Hooker is he's clever. I'll say true, but uh, we never get to see Ferguson versus Habib. I will say false, but that could just be wishful thinking. Someone says McNuggets is the current face the pain of Zings. Thank you. I thought it, I, I didn't think it was that good. Thoughts on this article by Bloody Elbows Ian Kidd. No one is talking about it, but UFC could have allowed anyone to secretly cheat at any time. I, I mean, like I think my position on anti-doping as well is well known at this point. But sure, I highly encourage everyone to read an article about essentially they don't really know who's in the testing pool and who's not. Uh, and someone could retire and then unretire, and you would never know about it, and they could avoid doping that way, or they could avoid testing that way. So go read it. But you guys know my opinion on this, so uh, no need to rehash it. Was Justin Gaethje the crazy fight that was offered to Nick Diaz a while back? No, no, it was not, no. While concussed, Jason High shoves a referee and is immediately fired. Floyd Mayweather is a convicted domestic abuse abuser and remains unapologetic, but the UFC is adding him to the roster. Well, I mean, they're talking about it, but okay. Call me crazy, but the latter seems worse for MMA's image. Right, but better for their bottom line. Um, there's a part of me that wants Paulie Malignaggi to commentate a UFC event. You know what? You can say whatever you want about Paulie Malignaggi as a person. He is an excellent boxing commentator. Now, how would he do in MMA? I don't know, but um, probably not well. But in boxing, Paulie Malignaggi is very, very, very good. Like, like legitimately maybe one of the best ones out there. I would call him, you know how good Brian Stan was at UFC? Paulie Malignaggi is that good in boxing, I would say. People might disagree with that, but I don't think that that's that unfair. Uh, all right. With Fox being flush with money or at least no debt and lots of stock options after the Disney asset, could you see them making an offer to buy the UFC from WME in the next few years? They already tried and failed, and I don't think they want it now. At least not under, the, under those kinds of terms. Um, you know, $4 billion plus. Uh, interestingly, there was an article out in the Sports Business Journal today where they, uh, one of the writers, John Orand, made some predictions, and you, you know, the value of those predictions you can judge for yourself. But he makes some predictions about um, what the next, what the next, uh, what the landscape might look like as the next set of television deals are signed, television rights fees are signed, and everyone sort of goes where they're going to go. Here's what he says: If the deal between um, Time Warner and AT and T is is uh, approved, in other words, the challenge by the Justice Department does not take too long, um, then he thinks that Turner might sign UFC, um, and that they would leave Fox. However, the deal if that if that complicating factor takes too long, they would probably stay with Fox for about two hundred fifty million a year. Although he thinks they might shop the Ultimate Fighter. Who would buy the Ultimate Fighter? I mean, his ratings are 10% of what they used to be, 10%. Who would buy that? I don't I don't know who would buy such a thing. I mean, maybe somebody would, but I don't know. I don't know who would buy that. Um, but the caveat is that if, these are all ifs in his predictions, if 
UFC goes to Turner, then Fox Sports would sign WWE. But why would WWE go to Fox Sports 1? I could see them going to Big Fox, but why would they go to Fox Sports 1 when they're already on networks that are more highly rated? So I don't quite get that either, but whatever. Uh, okay. Yes or no for these lightweight matchups if Connor gets stripped. All right, so we're assuming Connor is stripped. Tony versus winner of Habib Barboza for the lightweight belt. Yes, of course. Dustin, oh, you want, to, you want me to pick a winner? I guess Tony or something. I don't know. Dustin Poirier versus Alvarez. Winner gets the title shot after Habib versus Barboza. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes to all of them. I'm not sure what you want me to say. Yes to all of them. Kevin Lee versus Pettis. Gaethje versus James Vick. Yeah, of course. Would love to see it. What was the technique of 2017? What, what technique do you see fighters introducing in 2018? Uh, I would say two techniques of uh, 2017. Uh, one, wrist control. Not as we're facing up and I'm grabbing wrists, but from turtle position, reaching through, sliding, grabbing your wrist on the near side or taking your wrist and handing it to my other hand, and now I'm banging on you. Even Nurmagomedov used to be the only guy who was doing it. Now tons of people are doing it. And some were doing it before a little bit, but not very well. Now lots of guys are doing it really well. That has spread like wildfire. And Habib was one of the first ones to do it. He probably does it better than most still. But that to me is a very, 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 very big one. The second one is stance switching. Stance switching and uh, stance switching means a lot of different things. Some guys stance switch at the beginning of a combo. Some just constantly are switching throughout the course of a fight. Some switch at the end of a combo. Then there are guys like Max Holloway who can switch in the middle of a fight, but they could be fighting from an opposite stance the entire time. Right? He fought Cole Miller southpaw. He fights Jose Aldo orthodox. He fights Ricardo Lamas southpaw. He fights Cub Swanson southpaw. I mean, it's just. He can do a lot of different things in that sense. So to me, the two big ones, risk control. Risk control is so dominant and so important. It breaks the guy down. It makes that tur turtle position became way stronger this year, right? P attacks from turtle and ground and pound from turtle just became so much better because of risk control, grabbing that, forcing the structure down, driving the face down, and then just digging into him. That was one. And then, of course, the stance switching too, for sure. See, true false. The best and probably only good part of Ronda Rousey potentially in the WWE is that someone will finally get to openly criticize her MMA failings to a wide audience. Yes, I mean I've been openly criticizing her failings, but I suppose I do not have <laughs> quite the wide audience that uh, others might. Uh, okay, let's see. Oops, is RDA for real or a fraud? How would he be a fraud? Status of John Jones. I don't know. We keep reaching out to his lawyers, and they keep telling us, come back to us in a couple of weeks. I know I said that last week. It's true again. I don't know. I really, truly, honestly don't know. Someone asked me, why would any MMA fans want to watch Floyd versus somebody in the UFC? Maybe many wouldn't. But what comes to people who aren't MMA fans would, right? Just a thought about something. Dana wants to start Zufa Boxing. What if Dana brings Floyd as a partner, maybe a competitor to kickstart Dana's new venture? That would be fine, I guess. You're still doing business with a guy who is disreputable, who, by the way, 
just spent some time with Ramzan Kadyrov. Um, so keep that in mind. But uh, what? Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose if that if they want to get involved in Zufa boxing, that'd be one thing. You know, put Mayweather promotions with UFC, I guess, or something. But the way the article sounds is that it sounds like he wants to be a competitor, like a physical competitor. Plus, Joe Rogan was talking about on his podcast saying something similar as well. So, yeah. Uh, Bayern versus Dortmund, your pick. Come on, y'all. Dortmund is not that good. Uh, and Bayern is. All right. Uh... That's it. If you missed any part, well, what am I saying? Uh, if you want to email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. There is an MMA beat tomorrow. It's the last one of the year, gang. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, thanks to everyone who tolerated Harvey the Dent. Now we have, I don't know, somebody to crease, but this will go away. It'll be flat by the time we see it next week. Um, subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Like the video. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, I'll be doing one more live chat next week. One more live chat next week. And until next time, uh, stay frosty. Oh, thanks for buying the t-shirts. Bye.